When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. See a bad pass from him. Bunch down at the bottom. Down. With the long one. Not giving any ground away. Mertens. Brewer. Digs like a demented mole there. Osborne. Well, the Rugby World Cup is nearly upon us and we've got yet more Rugby World Cup content for you to get you in the mood for the big kickoff or to get you terrified about that opening fixture against Fiji. And... Uh, I think I'm safe in saying uh, a fellow fan of a nervous disposition is uh, is good friend of the show and author of Rugby Rebels, Role Models and Giant Killers, a uh, brand new book which uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading. Uh, it's James Stafford. How are you, James? Hello, and thanks for having me back. I'm good, nervous, as you said, but um, good otherwise. Well, thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for sending us a copy of the book as well as with uh, as with your previous uh, ones. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, again, if you if you've not listened to the previous ones with uh, with James, we chatted about uh, the illustrated history of, of Welsh rugby, which is uh, which is a fantastic read for any Welsh rugby fan. There is an English version which uh, we've 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 not covered for obvious reasons, and <laughs> uh, and we also um, we also discussed when uh, when Wales beat the All Blacks as well, which uh, was really really enjoying, uh, which was really really enjoyable as well. But we're going to concentrate on the the new book and we thought it'd be really nice to pick out some of the world cup related chapters as we head into mm-hmm. the the tournament because there's just some amazing stories in there um yeah. you know ranging from kind of some of the the shocks like uruguay last time out beating fiji which we probably won't get time to go into today um mm-hmm. but yeah i my my day job i founded a business called underdog sports marketing so the 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 giant killer stuff immediately appealed to me yeah, no, I'm a big, um, big, I mean, I know everyone loves an underdog story, but my father um, got it, dri- he kind of drilled the underdog thing into me when I used to watch sport with him. He'd always seem mm-hmm. to pick the like the hopeless teams to support and really go for them. And then uh, obviously grew up watching Rocky and that. And then my first NFL team was the Green Bay Packers when they were terrible. I grew up in the late 80s, 90s with Welsh rugby. They were terrible. My first <laughs> se- full season as a Cardiff season ticket holder was their worst season since the war. So I kind of always had a really, really soft spot for underdogs. And then I came from Barry and played rugby. My mini rugby team, we weren't very good. My school didn't have a team. Um, so or when we did play once a year, we'd get smashed. So I've always had a soft spot for teams that are not expected to do much. And um, this book was inspired by both teams. It, it features uh, nine teams who've overcome odds in some way from the men's and women's game. And also, um, I think it's uh, something like 17 or 18 individuals, either coaches or players, um, who've also overcome everything from cancer to injury to racism to sexism to just physical being too small and not being told they won't make it. And it's been really fun. It's kind of, I spent the previous two books 
although I love the research, there was a lot of stats, a lot mm. of heavy lifting in that. This one was much more kind of uh, still a lot of research, but getting to, I did lots of interviews with this one with some of the people in the book and um, rewatching old games with a much kind of like less analytical sense and kind of get the human stories out of it. So it's been a really fun book. It was a nice uh, the third one in the trilogy, but kind of a nice break but yeah reading some of these underdog stories is, is was quite uh as you seem to enjoy it just always there's just something so human about it isn't there people beating the odds and very hollywood but it's great stories there really is and i suppose given that it's uh it's wales fiji on sunday we should probably start with um or if you're listening to this further on down the line yeah uh, you'll know you'll know the result of that one but let's <laughs> let's take a look at, at fijian rugby because there's a whole chapter about um about fiji and i suppose yeah we remember the, the underdog story of their own beating Wales in in 07 and um and and things like that but this goes back quite a bit further and uh you know an, an incredible beginning really yeah so we, we people did, one of the things I wanted to do this book was it, it looks from some 19th century stuff to a lot of modern stuff but I wanted to go back to some of I wanted to do stories outside of the traditional big eight if you like and also focus on stories that everyone remembers Wales beating, uh, sorry, Fiji beating Wales in the mm. 2007 World Cup. And for a lot of people, that's kind of like their big moment. And understandably, it's, you know, why, but they've had a couple, not many, but a couple of really bigger moments, arguably bigger moments much further back and in the pre kind of television age that are just wonderful stories. And I, I wanted to kind of have some of these stories in the book to give people an appreciation of the history and also if I'm honest, to show how much world rugby or what was then the international rugby board or the international community kind of failed them as well. Mm. So in the, in the early fifties, um, I mean, Fiji started playing test rugby in 1924, but it was mainly with other Pacific Island teams. But in 1951, they toured New Zealand. Um, they didn't play an official test and, you know, you know we'll get into that, but it was, as you, as most people know, it was very hard for them to get official tests, but they had an incredible tour and the, New Zealand Rugby Almanac named three of their players, of the five top players of the year were Fijians. Their back row, they they raved about the Fijian back row play that was far above the New Zealand back row play, which is an incredible compliment because throughout New Zealand history, you know, their back row, they've taken pride in their wing forwards and their back rows and their flankers. And so they, they made a huge impression. Their style was obviously so, even then, I know we're going into cliche, but their ball handling and the way they played it was so different to anything even New Zealand were doing at the time and their sheer physicality and their approach. So they were hugely successful. And then Australia, so that the chapter in the book is about the 1952 tour of Australia, um, where they came along and okay, Australia weren't quite the powerhouse. They aren't, you know, they, they came to be, but they were a major nation. They played 10 games on the tour. They won eight of them. They lost one and drew one. They lost the first test to Australia and they had a second test, which was rearranged because to help them get home because they were running out of money um the australian union needed more money and the weather had ruined a few early gates but they had a second test and um fiji won it in an incredible uh style of rugby they absolutely blew australia away in the provincial most of the provincial and club games and they were seen as like um by some people as like one of the future stars of rugby uh the way they played the approach that the crowd loved them they were a novelty in the sense that you know most of the touring and games between rugby had been always between the major traditional major nations and it's kind of heartbreaking to see what they did in 1952 how well they played how they changed the game and to all intents and purposes they kind of fade from the top level really they have a couple more tours to australia and that but they don't come to i think they come to wales in the mid to late 60s in france mm. the irb didn't want them to come the irb wouldn't support it 
Um, Wales and France, to their credit, sort of took the tours on at their own financial risk. They were a huge success. They wouldn't give caps, unfortunately, because that was the way it worked then. But they almost beat Wales uh, in, in, in the 60s. And um, yeah, it's just I just wanted to tell that story because one, it's just a great story. And two, I think it, it's kind of heartbreaking that here we are, 2023, and it's probably the first World Cup where, you know, Fiji, quite rightly, they're seventh in the world. They feel like a major power. They can do some stuff. But you look back and it's like, you know, I know they had success in the seventh and that, but why didn't we get them to this stage 34 years ago? Or you know, it's so, yeah, hopefully people enjoy that and it'll reveal a few things a lot of people won't know. Yeah. And it's, um, you're absolutely right. It's fascinating to bring it up to modern day because this Fijian side, you know, goes in with expectations well above being an underdog. And they've been, um, you know, the, the last, I suppose, the last World Cup as well, they, you know, some of those players that there's no there's no doubt that they're they're world class performers, and then I suppose you've you've you have the Fijian Drua now as well, so an opportunity for a, a mm. club side, and again an opportunity that just really didn't didn't exist um, beforehand, and I think you're really starting to see the benefit of that, and you know from our point of view, um, you know as rugby fans as well as Welsh rugby fans, there is something incredible about watching you know, the so-called emerging nations actually emerge and, mm. um, and you know, and on the club scene as well. It's, you know, it, it's mm. just, it's so refreshing versus a backdrop of kind of, you know, are we getting more into the franchise world and things like that? It just feels really, really encouraging. And and you, <laughs> I suppose if they're in anyone's group other than Wales, you'd really want Fiji to, to, to go on and, and take the tournament by storm. You know, yeah, and I, I'm genuinely, you know, the news today that months is out at 10, uh, I, I'm genuinely gutted, even yeah. as a Welsh fan, because I always want the best, you know, I think if you're a true sports fan, you want the best players, and I've been really impressed by him, you know, I was impressed by him at Twickenham the other week, and I, I feel really feel for them, I know it happens to all teams, but I, I really want them to have a good, obviously I want Wales to win, but I'd love them to kick on out the group and do something, and I, I'm kind of... Um, I'm probably more nervous than a lot of fans in the sense that um, I always look at these things with a real historical bent. And I was just mm -hmm. looking earlier at the last thing, like nine games, the last nine games, I think it is, um, apart from like a, the 66 nil wipeout in 2011, I was looking at the scores. They beat, uh, we've only won 11, 10 in Cardiff. Then we lost to them in the world cup and we drew with them at home. And then we had the wipeout, but then, you know, 2014, we won by four points in Cardiff the next year by 10 points in Cardiff. Then, by you know a few points in Japan, um, we've you know the autumn international. We were lucky with the record. You know our record against them in the last ten years is they're squeaky games, and some of the even some of the games where we won by sort of ten points or more, it, it was quite close to fairly late on, or they had cards. Or so I think um, in some ways, the more you look back at the last decade or more, or 10, 50 years, it's even more scarier than you think. Which, it, but I think that's great. And I, and I, I as nervous as I am, I think. I've always been jealous of the Football World Cup growing up because the Football World Cup felt like a real tournament, if you if what I mean is multiple teams could win it. But even if you still only had the four or five teams that might win it, mm. you'd have Cameroon beating Argentina. You'd have, you know, these much more of these shocks. And because of the physical nature of rugby, it's much harder, which I think in a way underdog stories in rugby are more fascinating because there's far less luck or that. But I think it's really great that we're reaching a World Cup where the likes of Fiji are kind of expected to pull off a result now. It'll be a disappointment if they do. You've got, you know, uh, people like Tonga, you know, Tonga are going to, you mm. know, Samoa, England's going to be fascinating. You know, um, when have you ever really thought that was going to be a, a real contest? And I think it's really good for rugby. And I really do hope that we get some, 
you know, we do get the likes of Samoa, you know, forgetting the Welsh. I'd love to see Samoa turn over England. I'd love to see Tonga scare people. I'd love to see, I'd love to see Fiji get out of the group, if I'm honest. You know, obviously hopefully with the other ones. But yeah, it's exciting. It feels more, it's starting to feel more like a World Cup of other sports where those early rounds, are so many more uh, games with jeopardy. and, and Je- Jeopardy is the, is the key to sport for me. It's just like, you know, to see things sewn up, you're absolutely right. I think that's why the Football World Cup remains so so exciting yeah. because there are a number of teams who can win it. And that is the beautiful thing about international rugby is it, is it can be a great, uh, sorry, about international sport is it can be a great leveller. Yeah. Yes, some teams will have more resource, but it's not the same as football where Man City can go out and buy Erling Haaland and then... Yeah you know win everything and that makes it really really boring for me you know and I've always mm. been drawn to to crap sport teams but um yeah but it just is so much more interesting when there's things you know I'm, I'm the same like I found Tiger Woods dominance of golf really boring I was like I, I was like this is a sport this is a sport where you know you've got a field of hundreds of golfers you know who's going to win it shows how brilliant it is but mm. that to me was just it was was way more was way more boring than watching Tiger Woods when he came back and yeah. you know had this this kind of reputation tarnished and been through all this injury hell and was mm. sometimes playing amazing and sometimes playing terrible. That those things were to me as sport where you don't know what's going to happen just makes yeah. it that much more that much more uh, exciting. And also, I think as well being Welsh, you kind of you're in this nervous stage right now. But I, you've got to also kind of like I think some people. It'd be interesting how Fiji respond because a lot of people will think, oh, they've got nothing to lose, right? Because they're mm. Fiji. But, you know, hang on a minute. Like now this is kind of their, they're doing so well. They're up to seven. Things are coming together. In some ways, there's a pressure on them they've, they've never had as well. So that's going to be interesting to see how they cope with uh, teams kind of um, expect, people expecting them to do well. And it's been interesting. This isn't very scientific, but kind of all the podcasts and radio shows and newspapers I've been reading, listening to it, it shows you how much the world's changed in the current situation that I think most of the pundits I've heard from Wales are tipping that we'll either lose the Fiji or struggle, but they feel more confident against Australia, yeah. you know, than they do. And I know that's hard to do with Eddie Jones and the, and the disruption they've had as well, but it's bizarre to be going into a world cup where people are saying, yeah, you know, I, I think Fiji are going to do us, but I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll do enough to get past Australia because until the last world cup, they were just, we just couldn't get anywhere near them in world cups. You know, we had a horrendous world cup record against them apart from 87 and uh, until 2019. So yeah, it's a bizarre world cup, but that, but it's also, fantastic because um as you say i remember for most world cups the pool stages you'd have one maybe big game in a pool and the rest were kind of formalities and it's great now you know island for all the mess ups of um world rugby drawing the making the draw three years ago i mean i can't wait for the island south africa um scotland group and and, and it's fantastic uh from a it is yeah exactly i I don't know maybe um I'm trying to think back to how I felt ahead of 2015, yeah, when Wales were in a similar position. Yeah, arguably a tougher group, actually, because England were on home soil, Australia were good, and Fiji were the fourth-ranked side in there. Mm. And you kind of thought, well, this is is really, really tough. And that's all I could think about, I, I suppose. But... You know, from a neutral's perspective, again, the jeopardy is massive. And again, that's yeah. one of the biggest Rugby World Cup um, storylines for me was England going out in the group stages. Yeah, You know, obviously it was amazing that it was Wales that, that did it and it was maybe a bit of a missed opportunity, that that tournament. But yeah. it's, you know, those those things, those great big upsets and World Cup moments, and obviously you've, you've captured a lot of them in, um, in the book. Now, yeah. you mentioned a certain Eddie Jones there. Yeah, and uh, that leads us quite nicely onto, well, you know, I suppose the 
the most famous Rugby World Cup upset in terms of the the Japanese side beating the Springboks in in 2015 mm. in Brighton. Um, well, the really interesting bit I, I enjoyed about reading that chapter was uh, how it all started with a, an Eddie James meltdown at a press conference, wow. which 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 may sound familiar to people, um, but it, I, I was I wasn't aware of the, the specifics. It's, it's incredible read. Have you, I, if you haven't, I'll send it to you. I'll put it on my Twitter after the show. Um, the footage is still online, and it's a fantastic oh, wow. watch. It's a fantastic watch. Um, so, for those who don't know, Jones had come on and board in 2012, and they'd had a very bad start. And Jones was under pressure. Uh, Japan had been criticised in Japan for bringing in a lot of, you know, non-Japanese players, bringing in a lot of people on ancestral residency, and he wanted to move it back to have more. Japanese-grown players, home-based players, because he you know, to be whatever you think of Eddie Jones, he, mm. he creates. He has a great, you know, I think he's a great coach. You know, I'm, I know he's had issues in recent years, but he he's an incredible coach. And he put together one of these long range plans and, and he, he really wanted to build a real culture in that team and make it proud to be Japanese and really embody Japanese culture and values. And he started bringing in a lot more kind of homegrown players, but they had a really bad run of results and they lose this game to the French barbarians in a very bad, you know, like really bad loss at home. And they're doing the press conference and the captain, Toshiaki Hiroso, I think it is, and forgive my pronunciation, but um, he's very nervous and he's kind of smiling as he's giving answers. Um, as the, you know, And Eddie Jones, is just, he's just sat there fuming. And then, I, I won't even do the accent, but Eddie Jones is like, it's not funny. This isn't funny. And he just goes into this rant and the poor captain, Hiroshi, just sat there suddenly aware that you know eddie jones is just ripping him apart and he's like this is everything that's wrong with japanese culture and as uh, so japanese rugby um nobody wants to do anything and it's, it's too late in the game and then they're making big tackles in the last few minutes when it's too late um you and he says if you want me to resign now to the press i'll resign now um i'll do it if you want me to go back to picking loads of foreign players i'll do it and he just goes off on one and it's fantastic but to be fair in this example it's a case where eddie jones got it bang on because oh yes it was a real turning point in the japanese rugby in the squad um and in the way because a lot of the old a lot of players said yeah he's right like we do um we don't back ourselves we were too scared to do stuff we're not taking responsibility we're not and it kind of was a key moment in that development and it's a, but it's it's an amazing five minutes of footage and you feel so sorry for the captain because he he's just getting torn apart and eddie's just lost it but he kind of knew what i mean obviously it was eddie he was kind of angry but also knew what he was doing he kind of took that gamble that i'm just gonna do this in a press conference call the captain out call the team out and see how they respond um and yeah, I mean, that was the start of uh, that incredible journey. And I actually think I'm quite a big sports reader of all sports. I like to think I'm fairly aware of the history of lots of team sports. And I, I would go as far, I, I do believe this, because of the physical nature of rugby, you have to mm. get the tactics right, the strategy right, the execution right, but to have the fitness and the physicality, it's it's, it's why it's an upset in, in rugby is so much bigger than an upset in football in some ways, because to a degree, especially in the old days, you might get a lucky goal that comes off a post and then you could put yeah. 10 men in the box, you know. Um, I think rugby upsets are really one of the greatest in sports in context. And, you know, going, I think it's one of the greatest team upsets in sport, not just rugby. I think one of the greatest team upsets in sport. Um, and again, for those who might not realise, going into that World Cup, Japan had played 24 games since 1987 in the World Cup. They'd won one against yeah. Zimbabwe. Drawn two, I think another. I think one of them was against like Zimbabwe, and then they lost twenty-one, and you know had nearly twelve hundred points against them to just over four hundred themselves. And they, you know, that was a team with no World Cup pedigree, no expectations going in against, um, you know, what 
to, you know, today are the, the most successful World Cup team of all time because South Africa have won more, the same number of New Zealand World Cups with two fewer tournaments, you know. So yeah. to do that was just in, incredible. Um, and I remember watching that game. Um, annoyingly, I was offered tickets. For, I was playing for London Japanese at the time. I lived in London. And um, a couple of months before it, uh, the lads agreed. And you can see them on TV, actually, at the game as well. Um, a load of the lads were going down to watch it. And they asked me about tickets. And I kind of knew I'd be working. I'd been offered to work with the Telegraph in their offices for the World Cup. And it was a good opportunity. And uh, I sort of said no. And also, I, I wanted to go. But I thought, you know, I, I've been offered this kind of this work. It's early on in the tournament. Do I want to take time off, miss that, and then pay hundreds of pounds to see sort of South Africa win by like, you know, 49, mm. 20? And I didn't. And um, obviously, it, it was one of the great games of all time. So it's kind of uh, kicker. But the great thing about that, I mean, all of us who watch rugby for a long time, how many times have we seen an upset on the card after 60 minutes? But then the physicality, just, you know, the team with the superior resources or the squad just wears them down and it'll end up like not even being close. And when you, I obviously watched that game back a few times for this. Um, apart from the, just how brilliantly Eddie Jones had prepared that team, not just in fitness, in the belief, in the systems they were playing, in the execution, the mental calls they made, you know, to go for the win instead of the draw. Um, and Eddie Jones broke his radio. He was so upset. The coaches were like, take the draw, you know. That is one of the greatest decisions this, and to, to back it. And their try was the phases they went through, the passes they threw. Anyone who's played sport, I was always nervous. When it's so tough in those last few minutes to call for that ball and take that responsibility when it's so easy to hide. And it was incredible. And I, I just, but watching that game back, you know, Japan would take several, maybe five, eight, ten minutes to get a score. And then at times, South Africa would suddenly just make a breakthrough where one of their big guys would charge through and you thought, oh yeah, here we go. And then Japan would come back over 10 minutes and then South Africa would suddenly get another 30 yard try where their big replacement prop would smash through, you know, a full back. And you're like, oh, of course, why was I even dreaming? You know, you just kept, you kept thinking there were these stages where South Africa would come back and you're like, oh, of course it's not going to work. It's South Africa, it's Japan. And then Japan would come back again. It was just the, the emotional swings. And it, it's one of the great games of any sport I've ever seen. I get emotional watching it. I was watch, I watched that video and you, I'm not even Japanese and, you are, you know, it's like the end of Rocky, you know, your eyes are well. It's just incredible. It is. And I remember watching it, actually. And um, I have uh, a history of uh, of making very, very bad betting decisions. Um, <laughs> but on that day, actually, midway through, when South Africa were winning, I, I just thought, oh, bugger it. Let's see, let's see what the odds on Japan winning this are. Uh-huh. Um, back, what were they? Oh, do you know what? I, I can't remember now. But I didn't put much on it. But the odds were so good. It was because yeah, um, yeah. again, you know, history tells you that these things don't happen. Yeah, don't, you get no. you get the plucky performance, and then South Africa yeah. get out of there, and it's a bit of a scare, and they go on, and you know, we we kind of know the way these things end. Um, but for some reason, I don't know, maybe I had a couple of a couple of beers. I went right, okay, I'm going to back him, and um, I, and actually, do you know what? I, I the moment when Hesketh goes over in the corner, I'd forgotten all about that because it wasn't yeah, about winning money. It was about no. witnessing something that was just. You're right. It, it's. Um, it's just astonishing because you don't expect to see it, and that same level of joy they bought me four years later. I loved watching them on their own yeah. on their own turf in in Japan, yeah. and they played such wonderful rugby um, at that stage. And, and what was heartbreaking again, just to throw another dig in at World Rugby, what was so heartbreaking about 2015 is they had to play Paul Bass had to play Scotland four days later, yeah. right? And I've got a bit of a bugbear for all the controversy around you know the famous um was it Joubert, Scotland Australia decision where Scotland had the dodgy penalty right uh, sorry Australia got the 
got away with it the last moment against Scotland. Yeah, they did. But Scotland had the benefit of Japan having a game four days after South Africa. Japan beat South Africa, and South Africa just ran out of steam, understandably. After they were just exhausted, and then you know, without going into it, I think Scotland had some fortunate decisions against uh, Samoa that people have forgotten about, and the draw was just so kind to the the major nations. So annoyingly, what was heartbreaking is that was the, at that time Japan's best ever World Cup performance, and. I think was it they became the first team to win three games and I get out of the group or something like that. What's heartbreaking is they they did that and then the fixture list kind of screwed them over. Um, and it benefited again as it always had up until that point, the major nations. And you know, Wales have benefited from that in the past too. So I'm not I'm not just having a go at Scotland here or anything, but it was just a classic example of um Japan were good enough to win three games and do that, but the fixture list still kind of were you know done did them over so it was heartbreaking they never got that quarterfinal out of it but obviously what it did for and that's the other thing as you said the context and I know partly the reason they made that push was because of the 2019 World Cup mm. but to prove to the world that they deserve that World Cup was they truly did and there's a chapter on that actually in the book as well about the guy that brought you know came to Wales and brought that the World Cup to Japan um yeah it's a great story um so yeah, it's it's just one of the great, and it's one of those sporting moments. You know, you might never see a better one again. You might watch yeah. rugby for four years, and that might still be the greatest thing you've ever seen because it was so unique. Um, and, you know, on the out, unless someone like Georgia goes suddenly beats South Africa or New Zealand in a World Cup, like it's hard to see what could top it. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, and and even then, yeah. you know, um, Georgia now have you know an established history of of playing in World Cups and being competitive yeah. and, you know, getting yeah. sides to scare exactly. and a bloody nose every now and again. Like you yeah. say, Japan had not had never shown anything of any note at a World Cup. It would be like yeah. next time round, Romania beating... Yeah. Even then, as you, as you point it's, out in the book, Romania had a great side. Well, got, yeah, chapter on the 1980s yeah. Romania, which was fascinating, by the way. And again, I, I kind of... Um, so for, the, for those who... Maybe too young, but Wales lost to Romania twice in the eighties. Once mm. away, once at home. They beat Scotland. They beat. Um, I think they drew with Ireland, if I remember right. But they ran England very close. They almost beat New Zealand. I had a very close game with New Zealand. But what was fascinating, I spoke to one of the Romanian players from the eighty-eight game for the book. And when you, it's like when you look back at it in context. So it was a huge shock because Romania were this, you know, communist country with a very small rugby tradition that most people in the, in Wales thought. But when you look at it and I spoke to the players, so most of their players were from the army or yeah. the police and they were affected. They were actually full-time players. Right. So I talked to the, the, the hooker, George Eon, and he wonderful guy I spoke with his son. And he was telling me that he went in the police force, played for the police team in Bucharest. And I said, well, how much did you work? And he said, well, we only worked if we were injured or when we retired from rugby. So they were full-time players, right? They were doing, he was telling me about, and I had, I also interviewed Ian Watkins, his opposite number, the, the Welsh hooker, Evervale and Cardiff hooker. And Ian was saying like, you know, they did no preparation on Romania. Romania had been studying tapes of Wales. Uh, Romania had individual dossiers on the players they were playing. Uh, Romania were doing like weight training, training most days, um, they were doing weights and saunas on the day of the match, right? They were just years ahead in preparation. And then you look, when you look, and obviously it was an amateur age, and I know players were getting boot money, right? But they mm. were. Um, so for while it was a giant killing act in some ways, when I was going back through and talking to the players, when you look back at it, it's like, well, it wasn't such a shock in some ways because uh, they were effectively full-time players with the state behind them, um, preparing, doing dosses. And Wales were 
on the piss, not doing as much. Most of the players, some of the players were doing weight training and walking city was, but they weren't all doing that. So it's funny as well. Like again, that arrogance of, I think yes, Romania was a shock both times, but when you start looking at the rugby level in those countries at those times and the ways those players prepared, it probably uh, wasn't as much of a shock. So, and it, but again, world rugby left Romania, uh, especially after the revolution when the country yeah. collapsed. And again, I think rugby should have done more to, to support them and to be fair for all the criticism a lot of modern people give France for taking players from these countries with the club game France have the best uh, tradition of helping the smaller nations and Wales are better than most others as well um, the, going you know there's a chapter on Tonga you know Tonga beat Australia in 1973 there was a two match series Tonga and Australia in total have met four times they haven't met since 98 I don't think right in full cap levels now you there's a huge Tongan population in Australia well, look at the well. number of Tongan players of Tongan heritage to you know to dong the green and gold yeah yeah and uh Tonga were good enough to beat Australia in 1973 um and they said that and they played them twice since then in cap matches I mean, obviously, part of that, they haven't had the World Cup draw, but Wales have played in Tonga a couple of times. You know, we've played them in Cardiff a lot. And um, it just goes to show, I know there's economics and they, they want to have teams that come, but you can't you can't tell me that only twice since 1973 of Australia should have only played them twice, you know, 40 years or whatever it is, 50 years. It's it's terrible. So, and and um, and also, by the way, just a little side thing, it was fascinating, Um when I was researching the Tongan book, I, I kind of, there was a disparity between the film I was watching, the players' numbers and the um, uh, commentators, what they were calling the players. So I was doing this research. And the one is the internet. Within 10 minutes, I was speaking to one of the players' father, uh, daughters and she lived in Barry, five minutes from my mother's Brilliant. house. So when the book came out last week, uh, my mum ran, she's got my copies, I haven't got mine yet, in Barry, and she ran down the house and gave it to him. So it's amazing how the internet has helped me as well with these books because you can go back and that game was online and then you can do this research and suddenly you just go on Twitter and find a, a relative. And um, so, yeah, that was quite a funny story as well. But yeah, no, the book, you know, it's got, as you, as you said, it's got major nations in, but I think what I tried to do with the book and there's women's, I say there's chapters on the 2009 Wales women's team that beat England, the 91 USA women's team that won the World Cup and other people. And I think there'd be very few people, if any, if I'm honest, that will read this book and know all the stories or, oh, yeah. you know, there's so many, it's from such a, I've tried to put it from such a range of people and teams and, and eras that I've tried to write because a lot of rugby books are great, but they relate the same stories, you know, the 71 Lions, the 70s Welsh team, the 2003 England. I, I've wanted to kind of have some of those big teams or players, but also talk about these other teams and that, because their stories are just as interesting. That Fiji and 50, uh, two tour we just talked about is just as interesting as any other tour it's just no one remembers it you know so it was really good fun putting it together yeah it's, uh, it's absolutely packed full of these brilliant stories and we're going to continue talking about these uh wonderful world cup moments um some of them you know some of them you won't um and we're going to do that after this very quick break been brilliant chatting to you so far james about um uh, about the new book and uh, and some of these fantastic uh rugby stories uh, as we said for this for this episode we're concentrating on the on the world cup ones and uh, i suppose uh, yeah, the the most recent one um sir khaleesi lifting the world cup in mm. in 2019 um i mean this is a lot less um a lot less light-hearted than some of the stuff that we've that we've discussed because that is you know yeah. again a lot of people might know this journey but um 
it's absolutely incredible you know to it's very easy to kind of to to spin a um a rags to riches narrative isn't it sometimes yeah. you know but yeah. this is this is genuine incredible poverty to um to oh, playing absolutely. a sport that has not embraced you know or historically had certainly not embraced um uh, black african players to, yeah. to captaining his side and lifting the lifting the, the trophy it is astonishing it, it really is and like even just reading that chapter made me admire the man even more for, for everything he's achieved yeah so we have two south africans in the book we have errol tobias who was the first non-white player to play for south africa and that was like in the early 80s you know it was that recent and he was the last one for a long one of the one of only a couple for a long time and yeah anyone who's got the remote grasp of south african history will know how much the Springbok represented the, the white nation, if you like, and um, the the way you know the black players just couldn't get near it, or, or color players, as they say there. And um, for Saikalisi to captain South Africa is remarkable enough as it is, and any anyway. But when you uh, look back at his childhood, so he grew up in a, a township near Port Port Elizabeth, and we're talking proper poverty. We're mm-hmm. talking a roof, you know, corrugated iron is a roof with water coming through, rats running over, sleeping on the floor, you know, rats running over him in, in, in the nighttime. His grandmother having to feed him sugar water just to stop him from crying because they didn't have enough food, you know, so that she'd have to just put sugar and water and hope that would kind of mollify him. Uh, he saw his, um, his father was really around. He saw his female relatives abused and beaten by men, uh, violence in the street, you know, people, gangs, etc. So to come from that, um, and he, I mean, there's a famous story. He tells himself that he used to play rugby with a brick because he, he couldn't afford a ball. And he loved, he literally loved this brick. And that was what he, he played rugby with. Um, and to go from that, you know, he was, I say fortunate, you know, but like got a scholarship to play rugby eventually. Um, uh, very lucky because obviously there, I'm sure there are hun- hundreds of Kalesis that never get fortunate enough to be seen or, or spotted, but he was fortunate enough in that sense to have that. And uh, obviously an incredible player and seems a great man and um went from that to just to say the symbol symbolism of captains to cap not only to captain south africa but to take them to a world cup uh it's just one again one of the the great stories in rugby and i think it's hard to to read his story and, and not be immensely moved and not to just love him and i, I was so delighted to see him back again for, for, for however hard it was to watch wales uh getting taken apart i know it was a warm-up and that but I was cheer- I was almost cheering him on when he came on and he did a few great little offloads and some tackle and some of his early tackles and I was like oh, this is great because I really want him to make this World Cup. Um, he's by far my favourite sort of South African player, uh, which isn't hard <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah. But, um, no, it was great to see him back because uh, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time obviously reading and researching his story and um, yeah, it's one of the great ones. And it is, you know, when you track these kind of iconic um, World Cup moments and we always look at the Mandela and Francois Pinar as being such mm. a, you know, such a moment of, you know, of unity and of hope. And obviously South Africa has huge, um, huge troubles today in terms of, in terms of race relations and and huge governance problems and all those kind of things. But if you plot it in terms of, in terms of rugby to say that, what would that be? 20, is that 20, is it 24 years later he lifted the World Cup, Khaleesi? Yeah. Is that, would that be right? Not, uh, what was it? So 95. Yeah, 24, yeah. So 24 years later, you then had a you know a black South African captain and a side with, um, you know, full of diversity versus a side which had one black player in '95 in Chester Williams. Yeah, and you know that journey that journey is incredible to to witness and to have those kind of two bookend iconic 
um, moments that kind of jump off that jump off the page at you. I mean, arguably the, the Khaleesi one doesn't quite jump off as much as it should. I think because we always we always talk about Mandela and uh, and Francois, yeah. you know, but but to have a you know to have a player representing everything that he does is is incredible. I've got a funny Francois Pinar story for you, actually, if you want one. Um, yeah, excellent. I, I used to live in Dublin and I worked for, I, as for those who, I live in Prague, Czech Republic now, um, but I used to work for the embassy of the Czech Republic when I when I lived in Dublin, which was quite weird. A Welshman living in Dublin, working <laughs> for the embassy of the Czech Republic was confusing for people. But um, we had a consular section and where people come and apply for visas and passports and tourists from certain countries or visitors have to obviously have a visa if they're from non-EU countries. And uh, we had visa hours, I think it was like, say, Tuesday and a Thursday, and they were the only days you could apply. And one day, my consular, a lovely guy, but he was very busy and stressed, and he came into my room, and he's like, James, um, I've had a phone call from the South African embassy. They have some VIP. We're closed today, but they're saying, like, can we please see him because, you know, he's a very important person, and um, can you help me with this? Because I, I can't really say no because it's you know diplomatic. I kind of have to, but I could do without it. Can you come and help? And and I go in the room and it's Francois Pina <laughs> sat there with his wife. And they had, I mean, the Czechs had zero idea who he yeah. was. Uh, I mean, rugby's a lot bigger here now, but soon about then. And I'm like, yeah, we can see this guy. That's fine. <laughs> um, so it's kind of just, and I wasn't involved. I got to sit there with him for quite a bit and help him, even though I didn't do these, I just kind of pretended, but just to chat rugby with him. And he was lovely and I gave him some tips, but it, it, it was quite funny to show you how different cultures and countries, I mean, they, they had no idea idea who it was um and then years later when they made Invictus I got in touch with the people and said it's Matt Damon that you you had the old Matt Damon in the in the embassy that's how important he was he was really important so yeah so I gave him some tips I like to think that he um he enjoyed Prague with my tips in, in mind so you know yeah it was fun brilliant um and let's uh, yeah let's move on there and this this could be opening a can of worms here because I could talk about this for hours and uh on the front cover, which again is brilliantly, um, brilliantly illustrated. Um, uh, so it's Ruluca Moldovan, am I right? Is that correct? Yeah, Ruluca Moldovan. She's a Romanian uh, artist. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's brilliant. I've loved the illustrations in all the books. Um, and uh, the Jonah Lomu, who's featured on the front, is a a pixelate, a very slightly pixelated version with uh with yeah with like a a cursor mark underneath him to signify that this is Jonah Lomu rugby rather than um yeah rather than the the great man himself um which is a game that I lost hours and hours and hours (laughs) of my childhood to play in and as you as you document in the chapter it's almost you know it it has cult-like status even to this very day doesn't it yeah no that was really fun chapter and so for those who uh, the book, if you Google or look on Twitter, the book cover is like a fantasy team of 15 of the people that feature in this book. There's more than 15 people in it, but um, one of them, yeah, is a digital Jonah Lomo. And we had um, trouble doing it. We did multiple versions of various levels of digitalization. We did we did polygons at first, and mm-hmm. it just didn't quite look right. Then we did various levels of pixelation. And I actually put on Twitter, I got people to ask, to give me their feedback, what looks better? And we were still struggling because in some ways it looked like a misprint because you had 14 players who were crisp. And then, and then we realized if we added the cursor underneath that player identifier, when you're in control of it, it would work. But yeah, Jonah Lomo, um, obviously a, a massive game. And the feedback I got on Twitter, I think my tweet about it got like some like 200 quarter of a million crazy responses. Everyone tweeting, and I all the quotes from the from the commentary or, or talking about their tips or or talking about Lee Mather, the famous winger you could unlock. And um, 
Yeah, well, I was kind of it was kind of myself because I I didn't have John Alone for years because I when I was when that came out, uh, a cousin and a family friend had it, so I would go around their house yeah. and play it, but not very often because of where they live. So I loved it, but didn't get to play it as much as I wanted when it came out. A few years later, when I was older, I, I got an old PlayStation and had one, but by then, I, you know, I, everyone else had stopped playing it in my neighborhood. But I, I loved it, but I, I just didn't have it at the time, um, and it so I kind of became even a bigger thing for me because I always wanted it and the people I played had it and they would always beat me quite badly because they they knew all the tricks but no it's it's a massive game and obviously um an amazing time Loma would explode on on the scene two years earlier and what one of the things that you know I talk about in the chapter and talking to some of the people that made it because I spoke to a few of the developers and people behind the game um was why it worked because people keep saying I used to be a really big gamer you know why doesn't why haven't they done it since? And the reason they haven't done it since is what they got right then is it was recognizably rugby. It had the momentum of rugby, the feel of rugby, but it was an arcade version of rugby and it had the right graphical tone, the right look. And it was simple enough that you could pick up and play in a few minutes, but detailed enough, you could become very, very good at it. The problem with rugby, I used to be a big Madden fan years ago. Mm. Um, Madden, the FIFA games, they're putting hundreds of millions of pounds a year into that game with, huge development teams all these AI models with rugby it's a far more complicated game than american football american football set piece you can program these short bursts of ai um rugby the complexity of the game to try and replicate that accurately on the budgets they have is just not possible so when they do occasionally release these rugby games they're all normally more often than not quite a big letdown because it just doesn't feel like rugby or it's clunky or it's wrong but what they got right with lomo is they they went for the mass market and the and the rugby fan and they hit that real sweet spot where you could pick up play it enjoy it it was fast it was worked and it had it and they've never got close to it since um unfortunately but i think that's the way if i was going to do a rugby game i know people have talked about world rugby should do one um i think that kind of lomo approach would be still be the best way to do it that more arcadey fun approach um so yeah yeah it's interesting actually because you do give an honorable mention to ea rugby 08 and um that again not to the same level but if you do a bit of digging out there there are again nerds and and, and people like me who you know who will will talk about um we'll talk about the outside half called heffler who was who was part of this if you if you do like the um the world league mode where you take over a team yeah you get get given a bunch of players who are largely useless and people will talk (laughs) about heffler and noali as if they're as if they're real people um and actually to (laughs) to be honest it was a better game because it does do that it did a brilliant job of you know there's a it does kind of go through the the nuance of rugby by by being able to do some set moves and, yeah. and having the forwards truck it up and things like that. And it probably is a, a better game and, and I absolutely loved it, but you're right in terms of that mass appeal. And that's why I loved Lomu so much as a kid was because again, yeah. I, you know, probably when I was, you know, when I was 11 or 12, I didn't fully understand all the r- rules of rugby, but Lomu was so easy just to pick up and play and, and, and therein lied the, the beauty of it. But, but this is the problem. If you, if you, even if you, if you make a game that accurately, if you could afford to make a good game with 
that accurately reflects rugby, the audience isn't big enough to financially no, support it. Because these Madden FIFA games, I mean, they're making billions off, quite literally hundreds and hundreds of millions a year. And there's not the rugby's too complicated. That's its problem in, in a video game sense. So rugby away, I mean, I know it was fun. I did play that. I, I was even doing video games reviews for a time around that time. I think my problem with rugby away was um, by that point, um, I was a big, I was playing a lot of Madden and I, mm. the level of Madden and rugby just felt so, the rugby understand was so far off that level of rugby. I was playing Madden and ESPN hockey and ESPN American football too. And, um, it just, it was fun, but I was, I just found the Madden that just far more, not realistic is the wrong word, but you know, like just far more accurate simulation. So I think I kind of, um, was too harsh a judge on it, perhaps. So I, I, I just had more fun on those ones, and rugby just it still felt frustrating. I can't remember what the little I get the games mixed up now, but there were certain little bugs that would drive me mad, or, or laws that were completely wrong. Or mm-hmm. I always rugby away at rugby or five, they had really weird laws when the ball went dead, or when you miss kicks and stuff like that. But no, it's a real shame, and I, I feel really sorry for young fans who don't have a definitive rugby game now. Um, because there, there was due to be Rugby 24 was due to come out in time for this World Cup, which was, um, I think it's a Big Ant Studios who've produced a couple of really good cricket games and uh-huh. uh, and things like that, which, um, yeah, unfortunately um, has been put back till the start of next year now, again, yeah, presumably, yeah, because it's bloody hard to make a, a rugby game. Um, which, yeah, it, it is a real shame. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, Again, I go back to NFL. I mean, it's a set piece game, and then plays last a few seconds. So it's far easier to program eleven people doing actions for a relatively short space of time mm. than to try and program 50, 30 people responding to a grubber kick or an up and under or a kick through or a more. It, it must be a nightmare, and I that's I, I don't know how rugby will ever be able to afford to make a truly great game. And then if they do make a great game. It just doesn't seem like they're going to get the licenses, right, for all the yeah. teams. And, and but, for a lot of people, not everyone, but there's also at that hardcore that I mean, I never really cared. It was great to have real mm-hmm. teams. It's much better. But I also think that's tough as well. I, I don't know if they've managed, how much they've managed to solve that for the proposed new one, do you know? Yeah, I, I think they've got a bunch of, um, a bunch of international licenses. I think, oh, as cool. usual, they've got like, um, I think they've got like the URC license, but not the premiership and there's a few mix and matches or or, you know things of that ilk but again that's where rugby's got to realize is it's like if this game is half decent what's more beneficial to i'm picking on premiership rugby i'm not sure if they have or haven't given their right license but to someone like that is it better to get their brand in front of um in front of a bunch of kids who let's assume it's a great game and people go, oh, yeah. do you know, what? It, was re- it was really brilliant. And they maybe had only watched Six Nations before. They go, oh, you know, I've yeah. done this career mode and I've taken, I've taken Saracens to, you know, to winning exactly. five Champions Cups in a row and things like that. It's like that's way more valuable at this stage than selling your license. To, I agree. To, if to they haven't got, if they haven't got licenses because they want too much money in the rugby world, it's crazy. I mean, you could even do, especially now in the way you can download, you know, team, you could even do it that. The games you have to buy the team's license, so you know yeah. you could even have it. I'm sure that if you want to play, I almost said wasps. Then if you want to play as Harlequins or something, you need a hell of a um, lot of money to play as wasps. Yeah, you would. Right? <laughs> uh, but if you want to play as Harlequins, you've got to pay five pounds to download Harlequins. I'm sure Harlequins fans would do it. You know, there's, you know, I, I mean, they should either effectively be just making sure all the licenses are in there, or make it really affordable for people to just buy them for a few quid. The, the other thing like, is it, as well, yeah. it's like the, with with Big Ant and the cricket games they've made. Is there's a big like fan community thing. And these people make the, will update the teams to, you know, including like made kits 
that yeah. are so close to perfect um, and the level of detail that they put into it is you've kind of got this whole fan community who are almost doing that bit for you. The bit yeah. that you're right that's so hard to do is you've is getting the gameplay right, and um, mm. and that's it, and that's the the real the real difficulty. I, I'm I've again in the in the in the book I speak to someone who's does mods of a lot of Lomo who's actually building yeah. the modern teams in Lomo, which is amazing. Yeah, and he's promised me. Um, I'm hope I got to get in touch with him. He's going to let me build an East Terrace because I obviously have a website, the East Terrace, and I, I've asked him if he'd build a team um, with me. And obviously, I want to be an L, put my dad in at number eight, and I just want to pick my own kind of like dream team. Um, so he's promised me he'll do that. So I need to get in touch with him because that would be great just to have um, an East Terrace team in in low more kit, and I'll be quite chuffed with that. <laughs> that would be amazing. Just to just to wrap up on um, on Lomo Rugby as well because we had. During lockdown, we had a you know, load of people came on and chose their kind of like their fancy 15s for us. Uh-huh. And, uh, and James Hook came on and he said that every day after training, I think it was like him and the kit man would, yeah. uh, would fire up an old PS1 like oh, after yeah. everyone's gone and he's finished doing extra extra kicks and stuff like that. And they'd sit there and play and play Loma Rugby for yeah. hours. Um, you know, and this is, you know, this is, you know, in, in relatively recent times, it's just, yeah, that yeah. It, it does just show how much people loved that game and, and how anyone struggled to, to to replicate it yeah it was great it was funny so i interviewed lee may the one of the people that worked on that who's in the in the uh rage team the you know the small the smallest player in the, the game un, the unbeatable yeah. small winger yeah which everyone was mentioning on twitter so I, I tracked him down he was a really lovely guy and he still works in games but he's a, he's not a rugby man well he says he actually goes to watch rugby now but he wasn't a rugby man at the time but um i was saying to him you know like would they not he doesn't own the rights obviously but can't they just kind of do a new license you know mm-hmm. just do some kind of thing with it and he he just said like again there's a mass uh essentially he sort of says there's a mass uh nostalgia for it but to commercially bring it back there's just not enough of a market um, yeah. you know but um you know it's a real shame because i think uh you know as a kid i had i had rugby games on the amstrad i had rugby games on the snes super nintendo and and stuff and they were all i played them because i love rugby but yeah. they were pretty naff if i'm honest even the first ea rugby game woke up 95 i had i had i had all of these and they were all yeah. garbage but i would play them forever because they were rugby yeah and i would write all my results down and all that and yeah. um the uh yeah but they were yeah, they were garbage but so when when and then it was annoying when a good one came out with lomo i just couldn't afford a playstation and i didn't have it so i was devastated so uh i've still got it i'm still dream one day of just getting really good at it when i'm in a few years when i have some spare time and i'm not writing books all the time <laughs> that sounds like it sounds like time well spent well we're gonna take one more quick break and then when we come yeah. back we're gonna talk about uh another uh incredibly small uh lee mother inspired winger um so yeah stay tuned for that and we'll be back after this quick break really enjoyed that james running through uh yeah jane lane rugby as you can tell i get as, as passionate about that as i do uh, <laughs> as i do about uh about the real thing um but yeah a man who's certainly uh given me as much entertainment as jane lane rugby over the years uh shane williams um chapter in there on shane full disclosure i haven't read the shane chapter yet but i you know I, you know his story i'm I sure hope, yeah. i hope i'm familiar enough with uh with yeah. his story and Obviously, the bit that ties it all back to this on the the eve of the World Cup is, you know, it's a line that's been thrown out so many times going to World Cup 2003 as, you know, as kind of reserve third choice scrum half or someone who could cover scrum half and then taking that tournament by by storm in that final game mm. against New Zealand and never and, and genuinely never looked back in his whole Wales mm. career after there was was undroppable after that game. 
yeah it's it's a it's kind of a great story uh, so again the book we have the giant kind of teams and then we have players or individuals that have kind of um defied odds in some ways and obviously with, with shane williams it was size because he uh when he came to the top test rugby was really changing professionalism would come in 95 but it was kind of the early late 90s early 2000s it, re- it really kicked in the benefits of the weight training and the, and the nutrition and the stuff they were doing and um for many people you know williams this young guy comes on again at scrum half at first for Neath, but he comes on the scene and he's like all the dreams of Welsh rugby romantics. But I think most people, probably even myself included, thought like it's great, but you can't do that at, at test level. It's just not going to work. And of course, then you had Henry was the first coach to pick him, but but he didn't pick him for a long time. And he, he and Henry was moving centers out into the wings. So you had David yeah. James and Gareth Thomas. Did not, had, did not fancy small wingers at all. Yeah, and, and David James was a great center, but he, you know he lacked pace. Um, and he did well on the wing, don't get me wrong, but he wasn't a natural winger. And he, um, you, you, you thought, well, that's never going to happen. And, and it did, and whilst it kind of did take a time for Henry to pick him. And um, and I was at the first game. Funnily enough, the day he made his debut for Wales, I should have been in Prague. So I, my, I live in Prague now because I, I went out on an Erasmus exchange program. And I was meant to go on the Saturday. Um, and all, all the other fellow students who were going, and I hung around because it was Wales, France, and I hadn't missed a five or six nation game in like 10, 11 years, and I didn't want to miss it. And it was, we lost 36 3 to France at home. And uh, Shane, and I ended up having to sleep the next night in Prague Airport because I'd messed everything up by delaying it for a day. But anyway, Shane Williams came on with a few minutes to go and threw an intercept, and, you know, kind of, um, and a lot of people, and like, it was stupid Welsh, but oh, yeah, he, you know, he, can't cope with it and he even said which is fascinating again when i was reading into it he didn't want to come on he was so nervous and he looks about 12 when you see that footage and he said uh when they called him he was on the sideline and when they said shane you're on he uh, he ignored them he pretended he couldn't hear them because he was just so nerve-wracked so nervous to go on so and then then the other fascinating thing so obviously eventually you know he was in and out the team for a bit but people thought he was too small um you know you know we had a bit of a run but Steve Hansen didn't raid him, it seemed, and, and didn't really want to take him and took him as a third-choice scrum half. But the other fascinating thing with Shane is when you look back at his, his youth rugby, he was very much of that old amateur hangover in the sense that he liked his drinking, he liked going mm-hmm. out. Um, he was involved in the kind of social scene of things. And he kind of didn't really see himself as playing. You know, he had lots, of, like a lot of top Welsh players, Adam Jones, all these people. There's that very Welsh thing to lack belief in yourself. And he he kind of never really seemed to believe it for a long time that he could do it. Um, and obviously then, you know, 2003 took off. But then a few years later, again, he went out of form when he tried to bulk up and, and tried to get away from his, his natural game. And then he went back to it and, and succeeded. And I still say um, 2008, the 2007-2008 season, is his form in that year for the Ospreys and for Wales is still one of the greatest seasons I've ever seen. He was the what he did for the Ospreys that year. The the try he scores in the 2012, um, sorry, the 2008 Grand Slam, sorry, 2008, when um, you know the ball drops loose and he hacks it. And you, I, I, I used to just rewatch it. His reaction, he's in that zone that season. His reaction mm. times were unbelievable. The ball gets dropped, and if you watch it, he's on it in a second. He hacks ahead which is an underrated skill to hack a ball to the perfect distance to how he's running onto it, controls his footwork. Incredible. Then he goes to South Africa in the summer and scores that famous try 
where everyone talks about how he turns three South Africans inside out in that tiny little square by the corner. But the way he reacts, a ball comes out on the, of the ruck just inside the South. The it turns spin. over twice, doesn't it? I think we turn yeah. it over, they turn it over. We turn, or three times, they turn it over again. He's pouncing on it. I don't know, but I used to play sport. I used to have good, I had no speed, but I had good reactions, but I had no speed. And I used to love those moments where I'd have those days where it felt like you just, your instincts were, just like you know, like you were like a frog catching a, a fly with your tongue. You just felt in the zone. And it looked that year, I always used to think Shane did some things. No, we weren't all tries and that, but he just had a sharpness about him and a reaction time about him. And it was one of the most perfect sort of 12 months I've seen a, a rugby player play. He was phenomenal that year. It, it was, you know, unbelievable. And as a rugby romantic, like it was just amazing to see that, yeah, there is a place in rugby for those kind of people if you let them play and not in a romantic, I'll just let them play. But he obviously had to learn the systems and they, you know, and he, he was a great defender, but you, you, you really saw him get people forget that as well. He really got embarrassed as a defender for someone his size. He was an incredible defender. I thought as well, that really got, didn't get found out very often. Um, and yeah, it was great to see that. And it's allowed, um, I think it was a huge moment in rug, in professional rugby to show that you, you know, if someone is that good, then you can find a place. They don't all have to be six foot two. Um, and then 100 kilos, you know. Yeah, and I, th- I think particularly those two games were just uh, were just astonishing because you know, New Ze- that that game against New Zealand. Well, I'm right in thinking we were already through, weren't we? We were already through because yeah, because we put we laboured past Canada, 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 Canada and second and he he got his opportunity and. We hadn't been close to the All Blacks, even close to the All Blacks in my lifetime. I don't remember yeah. one game prior to that no, no. Um, where we'd had a remote sniff of even giving them a game, yet alone beating them. And then all yeah, of a sudden, yeah. and, 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 you know, um, completely inspired by lots of players had brilliant games that day. Uh, Jonathan Thomas was brilliant. Kerry Sweeney had an amazing game. Yeah, he did, but, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but Shane was just, he terrified them. He genuinely terrified the, um, the All Blacks. And, um, you know, if you look at the footage on YouTube, it's always, it's, it's all got the... Um, Australian the, commentary. Key, yeah, the Australian commentary or, or the, the Antipodean commentary on it anyway, rather than the ITV one. And when I've watched those try so many times, it's like, it's Dead yeah. Man Williams. And well, it's, um, you can tell like that it, it, it had an impact on the most, you know, the, the most hardened and skeptical of, uh, of, of, of broadcasters that this guy was just was setting the tournament on fire. You're, you're right. Like, um, the, I always love on a lot of those Rugby World Cup clips for some reason they have the Australian commentary often. Um, and obviously they, they want to beat the Kiwi us to beat the Kiwis, but there's a genuine, cause obviously they don't know that much about Shane Williams. Right. Yeah. So for them, he's a kind of fairly unknown player and you can feel it's just one of those moments. You go back to the Japan thing. Just, it was one of those moments where, um, and the crowd reaction is yeah. people just can't believe what they're seeing. And it's not just that Wales are come, coming back at them after getting smashed early on in the game as well. Um, it's the manner they're doing it. And it's all like something from a movie. Like, you know, if it was a movie script, you'd have toned it down a bit. Like, with the comeback, the moves, the, the footwork. And there's one bit in there. And I think, I can't remember if I, I can't see it in front of me. Now. I don't have the book in front of me. But where he does like this kind of double, triple sidestep. I, I had to slow it down. Even though I've seen it loads of times, I still can't quite figure out I think he, he goes off one foot and then goes off the other foot twice. So he does like a one foot and then a double off the other foot and his body's at this strange angle. And, and then he just goes, you know, and um, it was just magic. And it was actually, I remember I was living in Dublin at the time and I went to the pub for it 
and it was all these early morning games. So you were in the pub at like seven, eight drinking in Ireland. It was packed. You had to get there at like seven to get in for an eight o'clock opening, I think it was. And um, I went along, you know, again, I'd never seen as close to the All Blacks in life. And, and we put a second string out and I, and I said, oh, this is going to be dreadful, but you know, I'm here. And of course, uh, Rockefeller scored after, I think, 90 seconds yeah. or a minute or whatever. And, like, and I, I remember turning to my friend and going, this is what I said, you know, we just have to endure it, you know. And then, you know, they go quite far ahead. And then it's just ridiculous comeback where Wales kind of go like 20, 30 points unanswered almost. And I remember, it goes back to the Japan thing, the 60 minute thing. You're like, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. And then just as I started to believe like, yeah. oh my God, not we're going to do it. And not only are we going to do it again, because I'm quite into my head. I'm like, with our second team, this is going to be one of the great upsets in sport. Not just are we going to do it. This is this is just, and you kind of all these rocky Hollywood moments go through your brain. And you're like, yeah, this is the fairy tale. This is happening. I'm never going to see a game. I'm going to see us beat the All Black for the first time since 53. And, and then of course, it falls apart right at the end. With that, and even though I think they still would have pulled away, I have no sympathy ever any time a New Zealander talks about forward pass because the pass that the Spencer puts through for the mm. you try is American football, literally American football like, and the and the touch judge is just there in line with it, and the ball goes about three meters forward. Even Steve Hansen mentioned it. Um, I don't know time, but even I've even heard key, even the Kiwi commentators right now. Um, and okay, okay, we would have fallen apart anyway. But I just remember it was just for, for sort of 30, 40 minutes. I thought I was going to see the defining. Welsh game of my life. And of course it hadn't, I'd never even seen us win a grand slam at that point, you know? So I hadn't had much to celebrate as a Welsh fan at that point. And I just thought, wow, it was an incredible game. And, um, and it, it still breaks my heart to go on to the Tomah World Cup then to go against England. We, you know, we outscored them three tries to one, but what breaks my heart with that? And, and obviously Shane Williams, contribution to Stephen Jones try, which was picked a lot last week in the times. And if you saw more, it, but... more great, more great commentary from the Australians on that. As a, Beats K, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it was funny, actually in the times last week, they had a load of writers pick their top tries and almost all of them picked that try and mentioned Shane Williams. It's such a, a great moment. I didn't realize how much it was appreciated outside of Wales, but what breaks my heart about that game is uh, we missed, we, we scored, um, you know, three tries to one. And I think, but we were only leading like by like, a few points because we missed all our conversions. Stephen Jones, one of them, he admitted he was mm. out of breath. And like, and you know, if we'd nailed all those, com- you know, if we'd nailed those conversions, like, you know, it would have really put pressure on them. Um, and frustratingly, we were scoring these tries, but just not kicking things. And um, again, that was again, because it had just come off that New Zealand. I thought, okay, we're going to, oh my God, we're going to knock England out. Like who, who were destined to win this thing. And for, again, for 60 minutes until kind of Mike Cat changed things. And I changed think we the game. Out in the centre, coming in the centre, didn't he? He came on the centre, yeah, yeah and, and helped, you know, with the kick in. And I think, um, I still, I think we lacked a little bit of fitness. I, I think we still weren't quite fit enough. And also just a belief, we just weren't used to being in that position. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I think England were, you know, looking back, were always going to find a way to win it. But it would have been fascinating if Stephen Jones, you know, hadn't missed a couple of sitters it would have been really re- even tenser but that was a, a bizarre world cup in, in so many ways um but it's one of those kind of funny that it's two of my favorite world cup memories and obviously we lost both of them um you know there's new zealand and the england game but they were just kind of great moments where for 60 minutes it just seemed the world had turned upside down yeah and obviously shane's kind of world cup um world cup finale was in you know a uh, you know, you talk about those dare to dare to believe moments. 2011 was just that. You know, I've, I've spoken about this on here loads, mm. but that whole autumn, I just um, from that first game against South Africa, which we should have won, and 
but again, know, we opened with a we gave him a try instantly. We gave him a try straight away. Wales opening, yeah, yeah. Um, but you just saw something that day. Was like, hang on, where where has this been for the last you know for the last mm. year? We'd had a pretty uninspired Six Nations. Yeah, um, showed glimpses in the World Cup warm ups and thought, oh, maybe maybe there's something, but. The level of intensity that came out after that, after that yeah. try, you know, Falato scored, and you thought, "Oh, hang on, this is Warburton was outrageous that day," and you know, players just stepped up to a to another level, and you thought we could be onto something here. I was living in Dublin at the time um, and played for Old Belvedere, and I was you know, like the only Welsh guy in the club in all the teams almost, and um, I got you know get so much stick, and it was a period. Um, I know we'd won the Six Nations against in that in the Six Nations against in that year, but for most of my time in Ireland, uh, we've been getting some pretty bad beatings for a lot of them. Um, so I used to come in for a lot of stick, and and that quarter final, um, you know, in Ireland they were they. I mean, so many people thought they were going all the way. Like they not just they were going to. We were an inconvenience, and they, I put it in my book. But there was a famous newspaper article where they just you know that. Priestland's the grey man of international rugby. Warburton's not good enough. Muscle has a memory and we're going to, you know, the memory's just going to trounce away. You know, really dismissive mm-hmm. stuff. And I remember um, just, it, I think it's it's one of the great Welsh displays. Again, we, we score from the kickoff in that opening three-minute sequence. Again, actually Shane Williams, but the the hits that went in on the kickoff, the way we played it. And my only frustration with that game is I don't think the scoreline reflected how far no, it was. so much better them. than them, yeah. But to be, that was a really nice day to be in Dublin because I got so much stick from everyone and everything and, and, and no one had given us a chance. And it was a fantastic, um, and I, I listened to Sean Edwards talking about it the other, uh, the other week. He had he was on Sam Warburton's podcast and he talked about that. What a great I've been meaning to plug moment. that podcast, by the way, because my friend Rob produces it. And um, okay, and it is, one, yeah, it? it's brilliant. And yeah, there's there's lots of great rugby, um, lots of great rugby insight yeah. on there, and some brilliant rugby guests. And so I, yeah, it's it, it is well worth checking out. And the, and they talked about because Sean Edwards talked about how they played two fullbacks um, because they and. She, Ogara, they didn't know they were going to do it, and Ogara didn't know how to cope because Wales had pulled the foot. You know, it was some nice insight from I'm Sean on it. And also, um, I'm a huge Lydia fan. I am aware he doesn't offer much going forward and the criticisms of him, but I've I've just got huge respect for his tackle. Obviously, I just think his tackling is phenomenal. He changed what he did in that 2011 game in that back row, but his those shoulders. You know, the Irish. I think they said on the podcast like. The Irish back row made about four meters or something in that mm. game, something stupid, like some crazy stat. And I just remember, like, because you, you hadn't really seen much tackling like that or that systematic amount of, of chop tackling that you saw before that World Cup. And it just sometimes it seemed like the players were just getting hit down by lightning. They'd be running and then they would just be on the floor. And you were like, well, how did he f- fall down so fast? You know, you had to watch the replays because you weren't used to seeing that kind of tackling. And it's incredible to think that Lydia could be there on, on this weekend. Yeah, in, I, in terms of it's, it's mental but you know for all the I know a lot of people criticize but to keep himself in that shape with the injuries he's had and to still be potentially to not just play at his age but to play against a team like Fiji with the speed and, and, and agility they'll bring it, it, well and, and he was discarded player. really you know was discarded yeah. um, you know mid mid Gatland wasn't he he kind of backed mm. him in 2015 and then there was kind of this whole push to play a different style and yeah. um, and then you know in and out of the team thereafter you know to then make another World Cup because um, he didn't go last time round, um, yeah. I can't remember if he was injured or not. But you know, he wasn't really in the reckoning at that point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to make it, you know, just shows 
how yeah, and really if I'm I know people talk, you know, he's tried to improve his game with a bit more carrying and he hasn't really. He just does that one thing incredibly well yeah. and and still does and has kept himself an incredible nick. I've got a soft spot for anyone who does one thing really well sometimes. Yeah, I do. As much as I love my all round players and, and also I've always I I know it's a bit old fashioned and that, but I, I do love the, the not old fashioned but the physicality of rugby. People who take batterings on the rugby field of just fascinating me and I really admire it for all that. I know these are dangers with con- I had a lot of concussions playing and mm. but I do but just to see the way he's um put himself for all the cle- putting himself on the line and the way he does it and the how good he was at it. But to then it's amazing and I know he's had time out with injury of course but for the way he plays to be going into a World Cup after his first one was 2011 yeah. is incredible. Um and I'd love him to um you know I, I love him to play on on the weekend and and have a, a brilliant tackling performance and um and you you know you, see, you know he's not going to do anything with the ball and all that but he, that's what he's picked for and your team's built around that structure that's fine by me um, but I, I've kind of was really glad that he's got fit again because when he got picked by Wayne Pivak um, and then he got I was really chuffed for him to come back and then he got injured and just straight away didn't he get 10, 20 minutes or something yeah. like that and I was devastated I remember thinking oh you know I'll never see him in a Welsh shirt again that's a real shame that it's ended like that because I was kind of hoping for this last kind of like nice story where he comes back at the end and ta- you know and so for him to, to then come back again because I remember thinking oh that's it like I'll never you know we'll never see him there again so I kind of really hope in the, the um, he has a great World Cup um, in particular, I'd love it. Yeah, similarly, Halfpenny actually as well, because again, mm. he was, you know, he was, he was sensational on that 2011. Having, again, I don't think he started, I think, did, did Hook start the first game at fullback? And uh, Halfpenny wasn't involved until he came on against Samoa and had a really good yeah. game, ducking tackles, adjusting his scrum cap like midway through, yeah, yeah. through breaks. And then, um, yeah, and then was just a, a fixture of the team thereafter. And, yeah. you know, again, when I, when you watched him, uh, get stretched off. Was it against Canada last uh, two, two summers ago? Jim, yeah, yeah. Mid, mid Lions tour. So playing in, you know, a, yeah. a pretty meaningless game. And what was a horrible injury? I thought, well, you yeah. never going to see him again. That's not that's not the great. That's not a great way for him to go out. So to then yeah. make his hundred cap and and make another World Cup, and especially after the, what happened in 2015 when he missed the World Cup in the World yeah, World oh World God, World. yeah, yeah. And yeah. that game, I was furious because it, unless my memory's playing tricks, he. Um, it was a, obviously a meaningless warm-up in that point. I think we were fair enough. Ahead. And he, he was limping. He had a different injury, done something to his leg. And I remember saying, take him off, take mm. him off. It's a warm-up. He's, he's limping. You don't need Lee Harpenny. Why have Lee Harpenny limping when you've got people on the bench, right? And then they kept him on, they kept him on. I think he had treatment once or twice, and that's my mind plays trick. And then he had the horrific, was it mm. knee, I think. Um, it was knee, yeah. And you were like, why was he even on the field at that point? Even at that point, even if you had 14 men, like, cause it was, just wasn't worth it. He had clearly had something wrong and it was just sort of, that was hard, you know, for him to, you forget, you kind of picture him being at that world cup in 2015 because of the age, but obviously, you know, he wasn't. So yeah, it's, it's great for him. And again, I know people, he doesn't have the pace anymore. He doesn't really beat men, but what he can do, uh, is, is just his positional playing experience. Well, he, he can do a job in the right situation. And obviously his kicking goes without saying, but I think uh, a lot of people forget, don't see that a lot of what shit, uh, uh, Halfpenny does is unseen. So it's just his position and just mm. cancels an option out for their kicking. So they don't even make that kick or it forces them to make a not as good kick or a strategy. So I think he's one of those players that, Again, when I've listened to coaches talk about him or, or talk to people personally about him, they say it's sometimes it's just his position frustrates your opposition, even though he's 50 meters away, but no one sees that. So they just 
because I don't see him making breaks in there. So I've got no doubt, you know, he can make a real impact as a, you know, it would be a, I think obviously Liam Williams will be the main man, but uh, I think he's great to have him in that squad. And I'm really, yeah, chuffed for him as well. Well, yeah, a, a team in 2011 that was, um, if not giant killers, certainly certainly underdogs going into that, as I think uh, mm. we, we probably will this time round, which, as we know, kind of tends to it tends to suit Wales, doesn't it? We it prefer yeah. it that way round. Um, so make sure, listeners, if you uh, if you get time um, to get your hands on a copy of Rugby Rebels, Role Models and Giant Killers, James, it's been brilliant to you. Uh, to actually, where, um, where will listeners be able to get hold of it? What's the best place for them to buy it? Well, it, it comes out on Thursday, the 7th of September, um, and it'll eventually make its way into or British, you know, major bookstores. Sometimes these things take a few weeks or two to hit the shelf, depending on the bookstore, but it'll be in bookstores as a normal book. But um, obviously, whether it's Amazon or any online bookseller or the publisher Polaris, you can get it. Um, just go on there. It's pretty easy to get again in a day or two. And like me, who has to wait about five, six weeks for the post to work from Britain to Prague. So you're, most anyone listening to this who orders it will probably have it a long time before I get my hands on it. But um, yeah, online or in bookstores coming soon. So yeah. Fantastic. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it and, um, well, I will finish reading it as well to, tonight, I imagine. Um, and yeah, hopefully our, our listeners do too. It's been brilliant to chat to you, James. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. And uh, yeah, enjoy, enjoy the me. World Cup and, and hopefully we'll, we'll catch up with you again soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Mercy me, that could have put him in Ward 4. I hope not, Bill. That's a maternity ward. Podcast Network.